This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio, FM 98. Hello there. I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio show in medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio, FM 98. Today we're joined by Dr. Mariana Birnbaum. Dr. Birnbaum is Professor Emerita at the University of California in Los Angeles, and she's also a recurring visiting professor at Central European University in Budapest. Thank you very much for joining us today, I'm delighted to be here. So I had a hard time coming up with um, questions for this interview because you've done such a vast amount of um, research in your repertoire in lots of different varied fields, but... um, I thought I'd start with something that I myself was um, personally curious about. Um, That's interesting. <laughs> one of your um, one of your um, fields of research is um, on Hungarian literature in um, the Renaissance. So, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about the sort of literature that's being produced and some of the authors that uh, Hungary has in this period? Well, this is uh, not so very clear because, you know, literature and writing at that point cannot be distinguished as clearly. And also, this is a period and a couple of more centuries thereafter when Hungarian literature is uh, not better than Latin literature uh, of the same subject, and uh, they are running parallel for a couple of centuries, creating practically the same kind of sphere of uh, involvement. Now, we have some great poetry in Hungarian, but we prior to that had some great poetry in Latin, like Janus Pannonius, who belongs to Hungarian literature, who belongs to Croatian literature, and the poor guy has never written anything but in Latin. And altogether, all he ever wanted to be was Italian. So uh, this is a complicated situation. Now, when we start having Hungarian literature of really significance, because it's not important to talk about names when they are not significant, when when they are below the expectations of those who have uh, read Italian literature, especially for, of the same period, But there is Valin Balashi, who is one of the most important literary figures, but he too is a controversial figure because many uh, scholars earlier have considered him uh, a part of the Renaissance uh, manifestation, and uh, other scholars think that he actually uh, belongs to an earlier period, and it's the Hungarian representation of the Fenamur. So uh, there are uh, many, many uh, ways of approaching the same people, and I deep down don't believe in the idea to uh, look at an author in his or her contextual framework. I mean, uh, if you are not good enough to be read in France, then it's not important that you are read in Hungary just because you were Hungarian. Sorry. Well, fair enough. Um, What exactly are most of these... um these authors writing then? Like, um, is it, you know, fantastic stories? You said that it's parallel with some of the Latin literature. 
What's what sort of topics are covered? Stories, histories. Okay. And uh, within the histories, of course, there are very many belletristic features because the genre is not as clear cut at that point. Uh, in the 15th century, you have literature that really wants to reflect uh, uh, the knowledge of the classics and uh, meter and the rhetorical norms and uh, the elegance of uh, uh, writing of uh, the Western contemporaries. Uh, Right after the discovery of America or sort of maybe even before that, there is a tendency of turning into uh, literature that can be proven to be true. So you start having a descriptive literature, a critical literature, historical works. So, But within that genre, you will really find such novelistic elements that it's uh, very worthwhile looking into that, too, as literature. I see. And getting back to a point that you made earlier, were there any... Um Authors, you know, from the Hungarian lands in the Renaissance who were, in fact, read abroad, um, either in different languages or that were translated or anything like that. Uh, are we talking about the 15th century uh, or 16th 15, century? 15th, 16th yeah. century, let's well, say. Well, in the 15th century, let's say Janusz Pannonius, whom I wrote, I think, the first and so far the only monographic work in English, that I think I published in 1980, but it was not published in Hungary. It was published by the then Yugoslav Academy of Sciences in Zagreb. Now, his work was well known in Italy. It was known in Hungary, uh, quite well known, of course, and uh, appreciated. But what are we talking about known? I mean, you have a country where maybe 2 or 3 percent of the population is uh, uh, adequately trained to be able to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Then you have his uh, particular private situation was such that his work uh, has uh, been... uh, dispersed, firstly because he was participating in an uprising against uh, Matthias Corvinus and secondly because he died young he died outside of the country he had his uh, uh, remains were brought back later. I just worked on two of his uh, manuscripts, uh, not just work because uh, 30, 40 years ago I began working about (laughs) one piece of uh, manuscript that fell into uh, the sea the Atlantic Uh, I'm sure it's a, it's a sea salty. The, the manuscript is salt, uh, shows salt water, not not sweet water. I don't know. I hope it's the Atlantic because that would figure what I figured out about it. Uh-huh. That uh, this is in the, for instance, and that's that's why I'm talking about um, importance. That this was two of his manuscripts and one of his published work from the 16th century was in the Capitulari Colombina in the Sevilla collection of Christopher Columbus's son. Hmm. And uh, uh, he bought it. They bought it in Amsterdam. They brought it from Holland. Uh, probably it fell into the sea after they were bought because I don't think that a uh, uh, dripping manuscript you would pay for. And uh, it was kept, and I worked on the manuscripts, both of them. It was very, very interesting. So now they were, uh, he was known enough that uh, that was done. Uh, however, and that is a catastrophic thing. In one of the manuscripts, it is attached to it. There are four hands, and it was attached in the, one of the manuscripts. There is a poem by Peter Bornemissa. Now, Peter Bornemissa is always considered the second best-known poet of the Renaissance. That was the only poem we have ever found. And even that is, 
uh, a fragment that I try to reconstruct from the wet pages, or uh, I mean, not wet, but dry, the pages that dried, but the wetness has been, uh, removed many of the original evidence and the marginal notes especially. Mm. So now you imagine to say that, that shall we say in the Italian Renaissance, the second best poet we know, we don't know any of his poetry. I mean, it is, it's farcical. It sounds farcical. And yet alone it is true. Now, with Balashi and with all these people, again, living in a war time, uh, imagine that war, uh, like the war it was in Vietnam. Uh, like they take a town, and then they take it back. They take mm. a town, they take it back. They take a town, they take it back. So these people lived an insecure, terrible life. Uh, they really performed among uh, one another, published later. They came out in flyers, in little pieces. They connected them, collected them. Later, who knows who worked with them? Who knows who added? Who knows who distracted? You know, we have not very much that we can solidly say that now this is evidence that's how it was, that's exactly the line. And what is so sad about it, that there is, for instance, Ilosvai. Now, Ilosvai Sajmes Peter, in his poetry, he uses a vola-vola uh, uh, ending, mm-hmm. which is his own archaization, because much earlier than that, we, had, we have rhymes, we have uh, masculine rhymes, feminine rhymes, we have all kinds of uh, rhythmical prose and so forth. So he is archaizing uh, deliberately. But the, the, the stuff that he is doing it against is, is so little. Mm-hmm. It is uh, so, it is so, it's through so much poverty in the sense and so such sadness. And uh, I know that I'm going against now the the belief of building up everything we have. And I really think that uh, you become a, a real scholarly community when you are able to look at your output in your country in a fair manner, that it should stand against or next to or embrace what is the contemporary standard. Mm-hmm. And don't give yourself always excuses for literature because you cannot. I mean, this is not your country's pride or not pride. It is it is uh, international value. Every piece of work that comes out is belongs to mankind. That's really, really interesting way of, 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 of viewing it, though. And ah, quite not very popular everywhere. In terms of the audience of, of of most of these literary sources, do we know anything about who who would have been reading them? Because that that came to mind when you were talking about the fact that. Uh, Janos Pannonius, you know, manuscript found its way into the descendants of Christopher Columbus. I just think that's the, the stories behind, you know, how these manuscripts change hands. Absolutely fascinating. And also, we know again when there is a Western source. Now, there was Bisticci, who in Florence was an excellent book dealer. And uh, for instance, when Janus Pannonius traveled to Florence, he has purchased a lot of books for himself, for uh, uh, Vites, his uncle, who was at that time the archbishop, and also for Matthias Corvinus's 
library. So uh, there were always this international network of exchanging books, of lending out books. Oh, uh, Panunius writes one place that is so wonderful that nobody knows uh, Greek uh, in the court because at least his Greek's books are not stolen or not returned. So, uh, oh, funny. and that was very charming. You know, sometimes such marginalia can can help you very much. But uh, uh, it is so that I, I also learned my own lesson with Janus Pannonius, thinking of the, how you spread this. I followed, in a sense, this kind of attitude that uh, he was a very well-known poet and, and so on and so forth. And then in the 90s, I think, I don't remember who put that out, maybe Sereni and Horvath, or I don't know, there came out a large volume of uh, feudal libraries, holdings of Hungarian nobility, and it was amazingly little trace of Pannonius, for instance. Hmm. So we just believe somehow it is a, a second-hand uh, uh, statements that we are uh, receiving. It's received information from centuries on that how popular he was, how famous he was. And then suddenly we get the actual uh, library uh, inventories, and it's much less than you expect. Oh, that's that's very interesting. I uh, am sounding very negative here. Ask me something. I can say something better, <laughs> more positive. Oh, dear. Um, do you have a favorite piece of literature that you've had to deal with so far? Is there anything that really sticks out that you really, really enjoy reading? Yes. I, I, I really enjoyed reading the poetry of Janusz Pannonius. He, was, uh, he would be absolutely... F- uh, today a part of our our culture and the kind of culture that I could always rely on. person of integrity, uh, a person of, who is real close to us, he was consumptive from childhood oh, on and died in, of consumption and in a, a culture where you had the uh, uh, golden description of the Renaissance uh, character who all looked uh, beautiful, handsome, strong and uh, virile, uh, he was telling you how he's shivering in his bed, how uh, he is uh, uh, either uh, uh, covered with sweat and coughing and can't hear uh, out of the fever and mucus coming out of his mouth. I mean, that was a dying man in front of you. It was like something you would see on a painting by Egon Schiele. I mean, he's really a part of the modern man who has individual uh, attitudes towards you as your reader. And uh, of course, what he felt about integrity of the the intellectual, the power of the pen over uh, over the sword, if you want to. Incidentally, that was another set of uh, essays I have it called The Sword and the Pen. And uh, no, The Orb and the Pen, (laughs) excuse me. (laughs) It was called The Orb and the Pen. The Orb and the Pen. That also came out in Hungary. I don't remember who published it. It's a Hungarian, but in English. Uh, That the... uh, the right of the intellectual over power, over naked power, I think he would be very adequately representing our thinking today. Absolutely fascinating. We're going to have to take a short break for now, but we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. This is Christopher Melke, and joining us today is Dr. Mariana Birnbaum, a professor emerita at UCLA and a recurring visiting professor at CEU in Budapest. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. 
So um, we're going to switch gears a little bit um, because uh, we had a very interesting talk in the first section on um, uh, aspects of um, Hungarian literature in the Renaissance. And uh, I want to um, talk a little bit more about some of the research that you've done on um, Jews in the Renaissance. So would you mind telling us a little bit about some of the work that you've done? Uh, well, actually, I was interested in Jews even before that because um, I have sort of a, a left-hand uh, series of publication and that's uh, modern literature, modern Central European literature. So I, I worked on some Jewish-German writers and Austrian and Polish and uh, uh, Hungarian. I wrote a book uh, in English but was published in Germany on uh, Miklós Radnóti who was a Hungarian martyred poet and uh, while I was working on Central European Renaissance, uh, it was the Fuggers that I have written on the Fuggers, and uh, especially one person, Hans Dernschwam, who was a factor, a representative of the Fuggers who visited the Ottoman Empire. And uh, while I was uh, reading his work, there was a sentence in that uh, referring to a Portuguese Jew and his uh, family who uh, pretended to be just a part of the world that they didn't belong to and that was the Ottoman Empire's failure that they were not able to put the Jews in their place. That, that struck me somehow and uh, what was interesting that this man was an extremely astute uh, uh, observer and I later proved, uh, I hope, uh, that uh, he was working for a Hungarian nobleman uh, as a spy. So he was really uh, working very carefully on that. And that uh, the name uh, uh, then struck my mind. And then a couple of years later, uh, I was attending a lecture uh, where they talked about uh, coins. And one of the coins was a coin from the 16th, mid-16th century from... Uh, Ferrara, and it depicted a very attractive-looking young Jewish woman with Hebrew lettering around the coin, a very unusual one. And the person attributed the sitter to uh, Gracia Mendes, the lady from that uh, group. And I knew that that was wrong because uh, by the time this was made, Mrs. Mendes was like in her 50s and that was a young girl. And later I was able to prove that that was her niece, uh, called, as a matter of fact, uh, La Chica, the, the young one. And this uh, is, you know, most scholarship is born by trying to correct what somebody else mistakes <laughs> other people make. So that's how this was born. And I started to work on it, and that came out in, in many ways, maybe my so far most successful book because it came out in English and then it was translated to Portuguese and to Turkish and Hungarian and Croatian. So, wow. And, and uh, I think that her character was something ec extremely interesting uh, because she was a converso, a new Christian. I, I never used the word Marano because uh, no Jew ever described himself, herself as a Marano. This was a slur and uh, used against them. So let's say new Christian uh, or secret Jew. And what she was, they were millionaires, millionaire bankers, the family, as mm -hmm. Christians. Uh, they first were moving as Jews from in 1492 
to uh, Portugal from uh, Spain when they were uh, identified as Jews and instead of converting they moved and then afterwards in Portugal uh, they uh, when second time they would have been expelled they obviously decided to convert but clearly they also decided to remain secret Jews and the family was very modern they were sending out members of the family to other places like England and uh, low countries and uh, it's a big career long career they ended up finally in the Ottoman Empire uh, and uh, being Suleiman's uh, confident and uh, the woman and uh, they got Sfat today Sefad it's called as town to build it to a, as a Jewish community and such things. So very amazing career. I think her biggest career was an economic career because in Ancona where she also had agents, there was an auto da fe and uh, 30 of her agents, among her agents too, but 30 people have been put to the fire. And she organized a boycott. A, a woman, a Jewish woman in the 16th century organized a boycott against Ancona, an economic maritime boycott that lasted for a year and a half. A, a fantastic woman. Wow. And uh, many things have been written about her, uh, you know, during her lifetime. And uh, because of that, and books dedicated to her, a, a remarkable, remarkable person. Now, of course, she is not at all representative of her age because it, she was a millionaire. Yes. Okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it was a one-time event. She didn't really improve the lot of her uh, Jewish compatriots later or even Jewish women or in any way. But uh, she was a very remarkable person. Very interesting. Um, what sources do we have for Grazia Mendes? Do we have like her correspondence or do we have like account books or things like that? We have more or less that. And it is a very interesting show about how Jews moved around the world in this time. For instance, she lived in Ferrara, lived in Venice first, she uh, lived in the Low Countries, where she was a Christian. Then they escaped down, but still uh, as a Christian, she came to Venice, uh, where she was in front of the Inquisition, not she, but her younger sister and the family. Uh, in Ferrara, they knew she was Jewish. In Venice, they didn't know. Uh, she dealt with Ragusa, Dubrovnik, uh, where she had all the privileges that all their local merchants got, which they accepted for her. We have the records because the uh, the Senate there has very, very good, complete records, where she even used another name, Grazia Luna, uh, I mean Beatrix Luna. And uh, so they used several names, these people. I see. Uh, uh, this was very, uh, very usual. Uh, especially they had Christian names, they had Jewish names, they had uh, some of them they used openly. Uh, and th- she was not just a banker for all these people and um, internationally a very excellent export-import person, but they also took money. Her agents, for instance, took monies from Ragusa and the other agents paid it out in during the Ottoman uh, at the Ottoman Empire uh, in um, uh, Thessalonica, or, or uh, which meant that uh, uh, the money was not exposed or the goods were not exposed to the pirates hmm. because they never travelled with that. One paid here, one paid there. I mean, say so, really the modern so like kind of uh, business. Kind of like credit then. Credit uh, and modern, totally modern business dealings. I mean, I found, I am very bad in such things, and I found that most about today's economic world on the basis of 
how she was doing it. Oh, I see. Because <laughs> it was quite interesting. That's fascinating. Uh, do you know the writer Orkan Pamuk, who is a Nobel Prize Turkish writer? Uh, his brother, I first got to his brother after him. His brother is... Uh, uh, has fantastic knowledge about values, coins, and uh, and mostly values yes. and business at that uh, at this area. Uh, and I, I actually found out that not just the Fuggers, who had a fantastic bookkeeping a hundred years earlier already, this was so sophisticated. All these people had such sophisticated bookkeepings who were really big business people, and especially those who were lending to kings and, uh, yes. uh, <laughs> you know, you had to know what you were doing. Well, I'm... Um, and I'm, I'm I'm curious if we um, if you wouldn't mind getting back to the the coin with the Hebrew and the young Jewish girl on it. I mean, um, do we know the circumstances of how that got minted? Her niece obviously posed for it, but what's the relationship between Grazia Mendez and this one coin that you mentioned? Well, uh, this wa- this coin was probably minted uh, in honor of her marriage. Oh, I see. Her so. wedding. And they were very rich people. Now, she was no longer there. She was already in the Ottoman Empire when they got married because she was not, uh, the niece was not let out. I see. You know, you had to have a, a, a safe conduct. And uh, uh, the prince uh, hesitated for a long time, mostly until he got all the money that he wanted to get from them. I see. Now, as far as the Hebrew characters, uh, it is uh, very well known that from the Middle Ages on, uh, uh, you see on frescoes, on paintings, on uh, Hebrew lettering. Uh, some of them are correct, many of, most of them are not. Now, this happened to be correct, the I name. See. And it was interesting because a tzaddik, the grazia, was done with a the tzaddik, and so the person knew what he was doing. I see, right. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating because um, with them. Um, some of the early reliquary crosses that we get in, like, maybe the 10th century, you know, you see medieval people trying to put, like, Greek letters, trying to make, you know, these these objects holding sacred relics to look older by inscribing all of these Greek letters. And, oft, and I can think of um, at least a few where the, the, the Greek lettering on it, it's... It's complete. Some of it's completely made up. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It looks like great characters, but it's you know that that character just simply does not exist and never has. And it's how people in the you know tenth and eleventh centuries imagine Greek should look like. So, for me, it's 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 a it's a really very important point that it, this one coin right here has all of the right letters. Yes, but you see, this is the sixteenth century, uh, where um, the idea of a trained humanist is uh, that he's a man of three languages. Uh, mm-hmm. Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and already oh, okay. Erasmus uh, said that he came to Italy uh, at Fontes Revertire to uh, learn also about Hebrew. And uh, there were many, many scholars and humanists whose Hebrew was good, and I suppose they expected that of the artists too. Well, that's fascinating. That's something that you don't really... Well, it's something that I've certainly never thought about before. I mean, Latin and Greek, obviously, in this period are very, very important, but... Yes, it's a much later period, you know, than, than the period when you are looking at yes, your coins. Yes, this is true. Yes. De- definitely, definitely. Uh, we'll take a very short break, but we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. This is Christopher Melke, your host of Past Perfect, joined here by a Professor Emerita from UCLA and a recurring visiting professor at CEU in Budapest, Dr. Mariana Birnbaum. Thank you very much for joining Thank us. Thank you. So, um, 
I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, um, some of the other things that you've been um, working on. Um, during the break, uh, we were talking a bit about the person of um, Fromet Mendelssohn. Oh, would you mind telling us a little bit about um, uh, who this lady was and uh, why she's important? Uh, well, uh, this is a little bit out of the medieval sphere uh, because uh, she is a figure of the 18th century, but uh, she was uh, one of the Jewish uh, women uh, who had, if not an impact, it was more a passive uh, impact in the cultural life, cultural life and civilization of Berlin, Prussian Berlin uh, of the 18th century, uh, being the wife of uh, Moses Mendelssohn, who was one of the fathers uh, of the German Enlightenment and definitely the father of the Jewish Enlightenment and a uh, friend of uh, Lessing, friend of Kant, and a very important and impressive personality. And uh, she, as the wife, created the milieu, including uh, the hosting of the large uh, e parties, not really parties, they were not dinner parties, they only uh, gave little almonds and something to drink or something uh, for uh, scores and scores of people who came to talk to the sage or talk to one another and this was a, a venue where uh, Jews and Christians freely mingled although I must say parenthetically that uh, Christian men came they didn't bring their wives and uh, women or the men of the house were not invited back they only there were two families with whom the Lessings were very close friends, but even in their homes they didn't eat because of the kosher laws uh, and while the other, they came and, uh, to eat in their house. But it was this woman who in, in many ways uh, shows us what the role of the woman was uh, behind uh, a person who created a, an entire trend uh, intellectual trend in that country and whose daughter already Dorothée uh, became a, a writer of her own uh, importance and uh, corresponder and so forth all her children were educated or became very rich educated and rich <laughs> good place to be mm -hmm. uh, what sources are you working at with her and how are you trying to go about approaching the person of uh, the wife of one of these um, leaders of the Salons. Well, that, that was rather interesting because that was really like detective work. Uh, her not being a publishing person, uh, I could get only secondary material. First, I had to flesh out immense amount of correspondence and references on uh, Moses Mendelssohn or the family where little, little sentences here, a line there, a line could be figured out. But the best was the, their correspondence. Uh, I, I must tell a very nice story, oh, if do. I may. Moses Mendelssohn was small, a hunchback, stuttered, uh, and was had a very nice and intelligent face. We see it from the paintings, several of them, but certainly anything but handsome. And she was a tall-ish, blonde, blue-eyed, very pretty girl. And it was clear that Moses wanted to ask her hand in marriage. She went to, he went from Berlin to Hamburg for that purpose. And for three weeks, he was sort of hanging around and didn't dare to pop the question. And then finally said his goodbyes. And he said, uh, he met her in the room where she was embroidering and very irritated. She knew that she will have to do something. And Moses said, do you believe that marriages are made in heaven? 
And she said, uh, yes. And she says, well, as a matter of fact, not only I believe it, but imagine they were, I was told that I will have a wife who is a beautiful, charming, intelligent woman, except she has a hump. And I said, my God, don't have a beautiful young woman be cursed by a hump. I take it myself, rather. So this, of course, is an apocryphal story, but I mean, it would melt a, a stone. Uh-huh. And uh, she immediately said yes. Now, that was followed by a one-year correspondence where every second day with the postal coach, they exchange letters. So three times a week for one year, they exchange letters. Now, from that, we should know an awful lot, except that her letters were not retained. So we only have a volume which is called... Uh, uh, Liebesbriefe or Brautbriefe, uh, Brautbriefe, uh, but it's only his letters. But from his letters, it's very interesting because you find out that her questions, her responses, her teasing, her uh, style, her everything, she was his match. She was a young woman, not in, you know, important in any sense. He was already a very famous man, much older. And she was his match. She bore up with him all the time. <laughs> so very clearly, uh, whatever happened in their marriage, it was not so that she was just a little woman. I see. And then it turns out later from the little notes that she lost her patience here and there about that gentleman who usually sat behind his desk. <laughs> who was also a businessman because you couldn't live without that. He was he had a um, silk factory. A silk factory. Yes, but oh. he actually had a real back room, a real back room where he was working on his own stuff all the time and where four or five o'clock in the afternoon the people from the town gathered and they discussed literature and philosophy and all that. Yeah. Lovely. So um, what ended up happening to the Mendelssohn family, if you don't mind? Uh, unfortunately, uh, with uh, the acceptance of this Enlightenment uh, philosophy, uh, most of them felt that their last step uh, to uh, becoming really German, which they desired very much, was to convert rather than uh, waiting until the Germans accept uh, uh, you as you are. The patent of tolerance that came out, you know, in uh, in Austria, they thought ultimately we lead somewhere, but it didn't because it also fell together with a new patriotic, I would rather call nationalistic tendency of romanticism. So that phase of romanticism becomes so national and so forth. Now, uh, I must say that this is already not medieval, the subject, but my whole scholarly career, if you can call that, was always between uh, the old period, older period, earlier periods, and either very modern, I mean contemporary, or sometimes 18th, 19th century, because I, I don't know, obviously, I I just uh, had to move around, uh, because life is very short. <laughs> <laughs> well, for us at Sea Medieval Radio, we have we, we we take the very long view of the Middle Ages, and um, well, sometimes they lasted forever. <laughs> <laughs> for, for 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 the Mendelssohn family, I also have to point out that um, the grandson of Moses Mendelssohn was the um, very famous composer Felix as well, which is how I'm familiar with the family. So. Uh, interesting to see, you know, the the, um, the the roots of this family going going back so far. With the letters of um, uh, from Matt Mendelssohn, I have to ask: um, Were they? Is it a situation where they 
they simply weren't kept, or were the, was there a request that they would be burned upon her death in order to Not that we know of. Absolutely, there's no record of that. It's most probably simply uh, after Moses' death, there was immediately a tremendous, uh, uh, everything was drafted in uh, letters, correspondence, uh, uh, everything. I, I have, for instance, a letter by Kant, Emmanuel Kant, who writes back that his last letters, he cannot, his responses shouldn't be published because it, they were just sort of off the cuff and he has to go through them. Mm-hmm. So we know that there was a real effort to collect uh, Mendelssohniana. And obviously his wife was considered these are just family letters. And, and somewhere maybe it was just left. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In uh, They moved a lot, the family. So maybe it was left after she was widowed. She was living with one son, then the other, then a daughter. So maybe they just left somewhere and disappeared. So is, is, is it a usual pattern um, for studying women in history that their, their personal co- correspondences um, tend not to be preserved? Probably a, cent- a, a generation later this wouldn't have been the case. Mm-hmm. And the generation earlier or in her generation, it was only when uh, people were important uh, on their own. I see. You know, uh, so that, that uh, uh, like Glückel, for instance who had a big business on her own. So such people. Uh, uh, I was uh, telling you earlier that uh, in the New York Times almost, uh, and the New Yorker too, uh, very often when they interview people, they ask that whom would they really like to meet and talk to. And I always think that I would very much like to meet these scores of people whose lives I have written on and that they will tell me, well, this is all nonsense. <laughs> I live totally differently. You misunderstood everything. Or they would say that, well, interesting that you thought of that because uh, that's what I really meant or something. I mean, really, maybe this is very selfish, but those are the people I would like to talk to to, to validate my own work. <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, that's sort of what's so interesting about being a historian, in my in my opinion, is just the fact that it's it's made of people. And for me, my my projects on the Hungarian queens, and I'm I'm very attached to them. I mean, there's about <laughs> thirty women from you know the tenth through the fourteenth centuries, and I think of them as my queens. Other people can borrow them; they're welcome to borrow them, but they're they're essentially mine. That's right. So you <laughs> appropriate. Somehow you feel that this is a part of yourself because Absolutely. you you have you are in a dialogue with these people all the time, and you know every 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 little thing that that comes across it's something that's you know may or may not be entirely significant, but there are so many details that you have to work your way and find through that that's what I really feel is uh, uh, it's so interesting in that th- there's always, you know, some new discovery to be made or some new approach to try or uh, something different to do. So I think that that's what's really what really makes this all worthwhile. For instance, I'm absolutely convinced that Janus Pannonius was homosexual. He has been uh, uh, attacked with uh, writing pornographic poetry. It's absolutely idiotic. That was not pornographic. It's erotic, and that's very big difference. Yes. That uh, there are um, pieces that are sort of pederastic parodies, but that's also ridiculous. Now, all these were subsre- suppressed because he was a bishop. It's not nice. However, he had a few love poems, very so obvious that uh, that the person uh, is a man, a young man. Uh, there is a young uh, 
rider who dies, falls off the horse and dies. And uh, he used, would have officially have a role that he was, um, uh, and that was an inferior to him. But uh, it, it is like a longing, loving love poem today you could still cry. He says that every man who walks by a young man, I see how his uh, hair flips, how his uh, body moves, and I see you. Now, please, if you, that's your cubicularius, you don't write such poetry. And uh, so to, to find something in these poems, even today, that many people have worked with, but when you are willing to open yourself and uh, willing to see it in a, with a new look, Austronanian, that's what the uh, Slavs called it, the modernist. For me, I, I just, part of the reason I love doing this work for CU Medieval Radio is Constantly finding out absolute new information and new people and new things for things that are, you know, 500 years old, 700 years old, even further. So we will have to take a short break right now, unfortunately, due to the the time, but uh, we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. Uh, this is Christopher Melke. We've um, had the pleasure of uh, listening to Dr. Mariana Birnbaum uh, so far. And um, uh, before we ended the show, I wanted to ask, um, what sort of projects are you working on um, at the moment? Well, I have three that I'm doing right now, and I have to rush because in my age, you know, every half an hour counts. So I'm, uh, I gave this paper recently, which was the Jew, Jews of Malta, namely a paper that compares the uh, play by uh, Christopher Marlowe, The Jew of Malta, which the actual situation of the Jews of Malta at the time of the play, which is the end of the 16th century. And uh, this is, I found it a very extremely interesting thing, but I would like to push it, put it together for a real publication. And then I have in mind, partially because of that, because in the uh, Jew of Malta, there is also the rich Jew Barabbas and his daughter. And of course, in the Merchant of Venice, there is a father and daughter. But I want to go back even further in the biblical times for uh, the book of Esther, where this is an almost father, namely a father figure. And uh, uh, Othello, where there is an interesting father-daughter relationship, although very small. So altogether, I want to talk about Renaissance fathers and daughters as they appear in literature or in uh, texts uh, that uh, have literary qualities. Um, and then, as always, I like to swing back to very modern uh, times, naming my contemporaries, friends of mine, writers, with whom I usually like to work and write interview books of style types. <laughs> Alrighty, well, it, it sounds very interesting, and we very much look forward to um, what you come up with next. Um, Dr. Birnbaum, thank you very much for coming on here. I thank you very much for the opportunity. It's, it's wonderful that you have this radio show, and I congratulate to you, and, and I really wish you all the luck with it. It's a unique endeavor, and it's, it's really very praiseworthy. Good luck. Oh, thank you so much. And for the listeners uh, back home, we thank you very much for um, listening in. Um, be sure to tune into our new website at www.medievalradio.org. Send us an email if you um, have any questions or comments to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as part of our One Million Medievalist campaign. We thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.